Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of You're Wrong with me, David Harsani, Senior Editor at The Federalist, and Molly Hemingway, Editor-in-Chief of The Federalist. How's it going, Molly? It's going great. I did mini golf last night, which is one of my favorite things to do. Really? That's a lot of fun. I love mini golf. Yeah. I, I've never, I, I hate real golf, but like mini golf, I think is far superior. I can't do either of them very well, but I still love doing them. I was, uh, since we brought it up, I was in New York for a few days uh, on the beach there, Long Beach. And I, uh, I just want to mention one thing I noticed there that was kind of surprising to me was the amount of Trump flags and sort of bumper stickers. I mean, this is New York, obviously. He is from New York, but you don't really think you're going to see it there on the South Shore of Long Island as much. And it was everywhere. I literally had not seen a single, and obviously it's not a scientific way to measure elections or, or anything like that, but uh, or polling, but it is, it's quite... It's quite jarring when you're from areas where, 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 you know, that are highly liberal. Well, and you live in an undisclosed location, but it's not New York City or D.C. I mean, you live in a normal place. But I will say that I drove recently to Chautauqua, New York, which is in western New York. And same thing, driving through western Pennsylvania, western New York, just an amazing number of trump signs not and also a lot of mastriano when we were in pennsylvania not a lot of senate race signs or anything like that but they were also not just prepackaged campaign signs these were a lot of the commentary on the current moment you know ripping on joe biden lots of words that i didn't want my children to be seeing related to joe biden you know flags posters painted signs i mean it was all it was it it was amazing. I actually wanted to just take pictures of everything, but I was driving, so I couldn't. Yeah, I saw the same. There was, you know, a, really a giant flag with F Joe Biden on it in the middle of Long Beach and a lot of kids around. This. So I'm not crazy about that, but still. well, here in here in D.C., I was on a show recently where we talked about how things are going very well for Joe Biden. So that's the D.C. perspective. This has been a good couple of weeks for Joe Biden and things are going well. It's always interesting to live in a place where people don't have a firm grasp on reality. And it's interesting since you brought it up that I, I think on the margins, I think we both agreed, you know, the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade might animate or excite some progressives or, or liberals. But the idea that this inflation reduction bill is going to get people excited and out, out to the to the polls, it, it's just I think it's it's really self delusion, you know, because there's nothing in there that's going to help most average people. And no one who wasn't going to vote for a Democrat is going to be turned by that or fooled by that, I don't think. Well, like the previous bill, though, these packages do have ways of really paying off the base in a, you know, in meaningful ways. And so I think when you're struggling to even keep your base in line, something like this might might help them. But it certainly will not make inflation go down no it will not there is nothing in there uh specifically catered to bringing inflation down and more spending we can say even though we're not economists uh will not uh do anything but 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 probably could i just yeah really quickly since we're on this topic i was fascinated to see as part of how things are going well for joe biden there were some talking points related to how Democrats had like absurd advantages in the generic ballot, according to three left wing polls from like The Economist, Politico, USA Today, said that they had like a four to six point advantage, which means so think. So I just kind of looked it up to see how it related to other Democrat first midterms. So both of Obama's midterms and Clinton's midterm. For Clinton and Obama's first midterm, Democrats had, it was like a six-point six disadvantage on the generic ballot. And Clinton and Obama were not deeply unpopular people. They weren't dealing with the levels of unpopularity that Joe Biden has, the inflation, the crises that he has helped create. I have a really hard time believing these left-wing polls 
I find them to be absurd actually, but we are in that period of time where pollsters frequently do information operations rather than polling. Like they try to kind of set a narrative, like actually things are going pretty well and look how they've turned everything around. And it's true that Republicans have not given Republican voters a lot to be happy about. They've helped pass a gun grab bill. They've been bad on the economy. They've, you know, they're not fighting all of what's happening that Democrats are doing. I realize they have no power, but they're not like, out there culturally fighting with with few exceptions. So I could see it not being as great for Republicans as it could be or should be. But these polls are just absurd. You're probably right. And they usually as you get closer to the election, they'll pull them in. You know, they'll they'll try. Right, but to... Yes, they will. But they're trying to sure. create a reality is what I don't like about it. Like in the summer of 2020, the polling was absurd then too, but it certainly affected people's perceptions of reality, particularly in D.C. So every night we would talk on the news about how horrific everything was. And I would keep saying, I think it's going to be a close race. I think it's going to be a close race. It was a close race, but I was sounding like I was you know, it just sounded absurd that I was saying it, given how horrific the poll numbers were that everybody else was glomming on to. Yeah, I mean, I'm always sort of skeptical about it. Uh, I'm a skeptical because on issues, there's clearly push polling going on when it comes to abortion or or these bills. But also, I'm sort of skeptical that people are paying enough attention sometimes that that these polls actually matter at this point. For instance, I'm kind of like, it's hard for me to believe Dr. Oz, <laughs> Dr. Oz, it's a cartoony, but anyway, is is behind by like 15 points. It's it's just very hard and difficult for, for me to believe that in Pennsylvania, where every race has been tight, that's the case. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. I could I would be willing to believe he could lose. I would be willing to believe that he's down. I had a really hard time seeing some of these polls that don't match with the reality of what pencil of what's happening in Pennsylvania. Um, it is. Yeah. Well, let's, I, 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 I just, I remember there were polls coming out for Mike Braun. Was it Mike Braun? I think. Yeah. Where like days before his election, he was supposed to lose by seven. He won by eight. I mean, that's a real big miss on polling. So people should look at track records and see how these pollsters do. I mean, the, the entire concept of people, you know, the way that pollsters frame it, people are moving towards, you know, this party or that part. It's it just my my real world uh, view of this and, and just speaking to people is that people it's impossible that millions of people are moving from here to there every week. It's just impossible. It's either. Uh, focus or it's it's who you're asking or you know or people not caring or caring or changing their you know changing their minds about how much they care but i just don't think um that there's that much movement but anyway i want to go real quick also against fetterman fetterman apparently has had a very severe stroke which has rendered him unable to campaign for months in pennsylvania uh news just came out that you know he likes to present himself as a blue collar man of the people and he admitted recently that in fact he's the child of wealthy parents who have subsidized his lifestyle which is very common among politicians like it's very common for wealthy and powerful families to try to have a politician in the family to help them get more money and more power that's that's a that's a very common story in the u.s senate they just usually don't pretend to be blue collar while doing it (laughs) right or do they some do, but usually it's it's tr- very transparent. I, I I was actually fooled by this guy a bit, but I would say, well, first of all, I just want to point out that maybe being in a coma and not campaigning is good for a politician. Like, has anyone ever thought that perhaps the less we see of someone, the better it is? I mean, Joe Biden was basically in a coma when he ran for president and he won. So, it, you know, it could. It works for me personally. I like people. I like the politicians a lot better when I don't have to hear them talk. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, since, you know, especially on the left now, there's always been this, you know, being from Colorado, you probably saw this as well. But remember, um, I forget his first name, Salazar, he was a senator. He would always run as a sort of and he did grow up poor, but but he was a rich lawyer and a lobbyist. And he would he would put on his cowboy hat and get in his pickup truck and like drive around Colorado like he was, you know, man of the people, which he was not. But Fetterman didn't even earn the things that he had, right? <laughs> he just simply, um, I, I think he 
I might have the number slightly off, but I think he lived in some sort of loft that was worth $700,000 that his sister sold him for a dollar or something like that. And his family sent him $50,000 a year when he was mayor of whatever town he was mayor of. Um, but his whole shtick, his whole persona is, you know, is this, is this working class, is this big lug, this working class dude who understands the suffering of the, of the proles. I, I, I think it's kind of funny. I don't know how much it'll matter, but, uh, it's not rare for leftists to act this way going back to Marx, you know, I mean, to pretend that they, they understand the working class when in, in essence they live off other people, the generosity of other people. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't mind when people connect with the working class there. It's, it can be weird how that happens. Um, Donald Trump connected with the working class. He grew up wealthy. He, he is wealthy he didn't hate the working class. And I think the working class could tell that. Um, it is kind of, it is curious how, I mean, this is a guy who I grew up seeing in New York and like, you know, everything was like gold plated, including his like toilet bowl, you know, like should, the work, he should not connect with the working class. And yet somehow he definitely does. I mean, there's no denying it. And uh, more than perhaps any presidential candidate going back to, I don't know who. So, um, it is kind of weird. I think maybe it's just because he enjoys and likes things. Part of it is that he like likes wrestling or likes McDonald's or like, you know, he likes things that normal or that, you know, working class Americans like, I don't know, maybe that's it. I don't know why. And his politics, right. His populist economic policies too. Let me ask you about this. If we're ready to move on from Fetterman fraud, um, <laughs> there was a primary night the, uh, this week and, um, I have to say I was away, so I, I didn't pay as much attention to it as I would have liked. But I will say this. I noticed that all of the coverage now, and this happens with every race, everything is framed as what Donald Trump has said about the race, right? Like Donald Trump back candidate wins or Donald Trump, you know, the person who voted for impeachment loses or like everything is about Donald Trump. They miss him so much. They don't even know how to cover politics that has very little to do with him on, on you know, sometimes, even though some of those races did you know, without making everything about Donald Trump. That's how I, I viewed it as someone who hadn't paid a lot of attention this weekend. Sure. I think it's it's a shorthand for people who don't understand or don't want to be honest about the changing nature of the Republican Party. So the Republican Party in D.C. remains pretty much as it has been from the Bush era, including many of the same figures, advancing many of the same policies, whether it's, um, you know, lower taxes, interventionist wars, and lack of concern about social issues, let's say. I hate that then, you lump those things together. Why? Because I'm a big fan of lowering taxes. I'm, I'm a fan of... Okay. Many, I'm just trying to... Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Those, those, were, those, were the sort of, those were the sort of main policy goals of that. And era. then you have like the Republican Party itself, the voters. I always think of the Republican Party as the people. This might be why I'm so weird in DC. I think the voters and the voters have different ideas about what they'd like to accomplish. Namely, they want to accomplish much more than the DC establishment party does. And so when you have these races, you get a settling of some of these issues. The establishment puts a lot of money into races. They want certain outcomes. They get those sometimes. Then the wing of the party that is best represented by its leader, Donald Trump, and who is, you know, form, former president, so leader of the party, uh, they also have some wins. And so I thought it was interesting that early in the night, there were 10 people who voted for impeachment. From the perspective of the D.C. establishment, these people are honorable. They're principled. The principle being like they signed on to a Democrat operation to politically ruin the Republican Party with trumped up charges that turned out not to be factually accurate. That's principle. Um, so these are the good people. Ten of them. Ten of them are. Ten of them did it. Ten of them would have been up for reelection. Some of them knew they were going to lose, so they just stepped out of the race. And then others have been defeated in primaries. But one of them, like the favorite of the D.C. establishment, was this guy, Peter Meyer. Very, very principled, we were told. So principled that he like voted for Biden's budget-busting bills, that he supported changing things. Um, I think he'd like introduced legislation regarding trans issues to 
you know, in the direction of what Democrats would want. He is bad on border issues from the perspective of the Republican Party. Uh, but there was something else he did that was kind of big. Anyway, the only principle they care about is that he voted for impeachment, which isn't even a principle that the vast majority of Republicans share and isn't conservative or anything like that. But it looked like he was going to pull off a win in his primary. Now, he should have won. He's the incumbent. And like 95 percent of the time, incumbents win or more. He's hugely wealthy and spent millions and millions of dollars on the race. And the district that he was representing is an area that was never particularly like close to Donald Trump, Grand Rapids area, people who didn't like Trump's personality. So he should have won easily. That it was even close is a big indictment of how he represented his district. But they thought he was going to win. He didn't. He lost. And at that time, they were really writing those, like, the meaning of the night is that the party is moving away from Trump. All these people who voted for impeachment are going to survive. And it turned out not to be true. Cancel culture is coming to your bank and holding the wrong political views might soon leave you out in the cold. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest episode of The Bill Walton Show, Todd Zwicky, Paul Watkins, and I discuss what is already happening, how the Biden administration is already pursuing this agenda, and what we can do about it. This progressive culture offensive is relentless. It's coming for you, and you won't hear about this anywhere else. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It, it is somewhat weird, or maybe it shouldn't be weird to me, and you'll probably say that I'm just being naive, but, you know, you could have been a principled person and believe that Donald Trump had done something wrong or wanted to impeach him. Like, I'm pretty much pro, always pro impeachment, no matter who's president, because I think most presidents... <laughs> no, matter, no matter the politician, no matter the reason, no matter the time, you're like, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> we got to keep people honest, you know what I mean? Keep them on their toes. So, but... Why does every principled, you know, so-called principled conservative have to also turn away from 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 conservative causes that that, you know, that have nothing to do with Donald Trump? I mean, well, I, I just and this the, is, the, the entire movement's like this. If the principle is hatred of Trump and that's the principle, yeah. it's not opposition to him. It's it's like unbridled hatred. You have to hate everything he stood for. And so that means that you could be someone who, like Bill Kristol, once served on the board of pro-life organizations, now being a pro-abortion activist because he hates Donald Trump. So he has to hate the pro-life cause. It, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't view this as principle at, at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I didn't a lot change my views when Donald Trump came on the scene. I was right. pro-life before and I'm pro-life now. So like, you know, I'm anti anti Trump because I defend Trump when he does something that I've always liked since I'm like 22 years old. Right. So it doesn't make any sense to me. There are the, the least principled people around are the crystal types, frankly, because they don't hold on to any of the things they believed in before because of one man. Um, and, and that's another reason that I don't really hate Trump as much, because I think the things that he has done that are wrong. Are, are how can I say are contained within him, right? He it's his personality, it's his sort of stubbornness or whatever. The things that the left wants to do are forever. When you want to load up a supreme, you know, cram the Supreme Court with activists and destroy the institution, that's forever. That's not just one election. That's not just one person. So to me, I don't even understand their thinking. But I don't know. I just I stopped trying about. I do want to criticize Trump related to primary night on one thing, which is. You know, you, you noted all the coverage is about who he endorsed or who he didn't endorse and how that went down. And there's a reason why Republicans seek his endorsement. It clearly matters. It's it's a very big signal to the base about who they can trust and who they can't. But he needs to do more than just endorse candidates if he really wants to shape the party in a new way. He has a, raised a lot of money. He could be giving more money. He needs to stick with people. He needs to like like, for instance, he endorsed Mo Brooks, who I thought was a great candidate in Alabama. Then he pulled the endorsement because Mo wasn't doing well. And he went with the same person that Mitch McConnell wanted. Um, that just is uncool, first of all. And he could have done so much more to help Mo Brooks win that primary with targeted communications, 
uh, it's not sufficient to just put out an email announcing an endorsement. There is so much more that he could do. And then also he could do a better job with some of his endorsements. I actually thought he handled things pretty well, um, like for Tuesday's primary. And I thought the the thing with Missouri was kind of genius. He had a lot of people in his circle who liked both both the guy who won Eric Schmidt and Eric Greitens who came in third place. And in fact, he was very close to people who liked Eric Greitens, I think family members and otherwise, and yet knew that was not the right pick for the party and just sent out a note saying he supports, he, he sort of said, Missouri, do you, you pick, pick the right person. I like Eric, meaning you could vote for either Eric. He was able to signal not to vote for the, more establishment figure that was backed by McConnell, I think, um, but without getting into a mess. But he still could be much wiser about how he handles these things, I think. And, and since we're talking about this, I wanted to bring up Kansas um, and the abortion. Uh, what was it? Uh, it wasn't a... Oh. It's a... It would have been an amendment to the Constitution. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it lost and it lo- lost... Big. Big. I think... You know, and, and we had a piece and, and others have argued that, that that there was a lot of confusion in the language. And now that's nothing new to these sorts of amendments. I think, again, in Colorado, you had a lot of them and, and the blue book, it was called, would always you know, have this vague language where you weren't sure if you were voting for or against. And this language, it wasn't even, it made no sense. I, I read it over and over again and it made little sense. Do you think that that was the, you know, the reason it lost or do you think in general, you know, I, I think probably was a, a mix of many different things, but do you think, um, what do you think about it? I think there were many reasons it lost. I think people should know first off, it was kind of the victim of Dobbs. What I mean by that is in 2019, the Kansas Supreme Court invented a right to abortion in the Kansas Constitution, much like the U.S. Supreme Court did in Roe v. Wade. They said, yep, this is hidden somewhere in the Constitution. But because the Supreme Court had ruled that, this would have been an amendment to the Kansas Constitution to make it clear that Kansas's Constitution does not have a hidden right to abortion in it. It was something that people had been working on prior to Dobbs, which overturned Roe v. Wade, and it totally changed the balance of power then. So when it was imagined, people were thinking they're in the Roe regime. This just enables us to make abortion law if Roe gets overturned or you know other things. We just make it clear that the Supreme Court can't do this kind of thing. Um, But when Dobbs overturned it, all of a sudden, like the calculus was kind of the opposite. The wording, as you know, was so unclear that I couldn't quite understand. I mean, the thing I saw had a misspelling and I was like, this can't be real, that it actually has a word misspelled. Uh, Amending your constitution is such a high bar in the mind of a voter that all you have to do is introduce the tiniest little bit of doubt and people vote no. And the far left pro-abortion people really invested heavily in this campaign. And they did, they, they said things that weren't true. Like this is going to ban abortion. That was not at all what it was going to do. But if you're having to explain that, you're losing. And so there were so many reasons why it failed. And it thing the thing about the pro-life movement is we've been working on preserving life and helping women and their children for 50 years in earnest. Like that's, so you live, you learn, you figure out new strategies. Um, There will probably be nothing like this again, meaning this was just a very unique, weird situation. Usually you'll be voting on limitations or care for women or something, you know, that's much more politically tenable. And also if the abortion lobby has to fight like a bunch of things at once and it's not a ballot initiative in august in kansas you know where they could pour all their money and energy into it um it would be harder for them to win particularly at this level what remains what will always remain the same is the propaganda press lying and being activists for abortion which they have been for more than 50 years and they're only getting worse so yeah no i agree with that it's it's a tough fight in that sense, there's a lot of scaremongering. In fact, 
I think the DOJ is suing Iowa based on a lie that uh, doctors are not providing life-saving care. And this is a lie perpetuated by media all over the place. So that's for sure. But I do think we have to accept also, and this happens in, in regards to many other issues, is that most people like the status quo. They are not affected by abortion personally. They they think, you know, they just don't want to deal with it. They don't think about it as much. So that's something that you need to overcome when you're going to have, especially any sort of direct democracy that's going to change, you know, fundamentally change how a state, I think, deals with this sort of thing. And an amendment is forever, right? So people, like you say, are far less inclined to want to to change something like that. But it, it definitely was, um, I think it was a bit of a downer um, because it lost so big. And I think that's, that's something that pro-life movement needs to take seriously, you know, not just... Uh, blame you know media or whatever not that i'm saying you're wrong i'm, I'm with you on all of that but I, I i think that uh the changing minds is going to be difficult but you know doable over the long term well even prior to something like this there were a lot of different streams of thought in the pro-life movement about how best to take on abortion regimes and there were a lot of people who opposed the dobbs approach for instance and so you get these like very big debates but you see how well Different states have tried different things. Finally, one of the things worked, uh, but a lot of things that don't work can end up hurting things more than if they hadn't been tried at all. And so that's what the pro-life movement needs to be really wise about is, I think in general, it's good to try different approaches, but sometimes those approaches are net negative. Yeah, I mean, I struggle. I am completely pro-life, but I do struggle, you know, I struggle with the idea of what what kind of bill, you know, should be supported. I mean, I believe that in this case, incrementalism is is a good idea, for instance, protecting viable babies first, then moving on. So I think like bills that don't allow for rape and uh, incest exemptions, I, I believe in that. I don't again, I don't think a tragedy of abortion should, you know, or a, a tragedy of a rape should be compounded with another tragedy. I get the the moral calculus there and all that. But I think that maybe it undermines our ability or the ability of pro-life legislators to pass bills that actually save lives. So I, I don't know. It's just a struggle for me to think about, you know, I'm just a columnist. I can say whatever I want, but when you actually have to convince people and vote on these bills, it, it becomes a tough, it becomes, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to deal with. Well, at the very least it's a wake up call to pro-lifers that overturning Roe was just the beginning. And it's certainly not the end of the effort to, end the scourge and violence of abortion. Yes. Let's talk about something else just real quick. Uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, went to Taiwan the other day, uh, obviously, <laughs> angering China, basically also ignoring, I think, the advice of the Biden administration, it's fair to say, um, which runs foreign policy, obviously, in the, in the nation. What, what did you make of her trip? So... It was also interesting because I think the Biden administration leaked the fact of her going and they clearly didn't want her to go. Um, it seems like once it was announced that she was going, she kind of had to go. <laughs> uh, but and she did. I wish that we had adults in D.C. who actually had a strategy for taking on China. Photo ops in Taiwan are not they don't do anything to take on China. China is a strategic adversary. We have done a lot. I actually was supportive of a lot of what we did in terms of opening up China. I understood why we were doing it when we were in a war with the Soviet Union. It was it was like there were there were good reasons at least to try to do this. Um, the last 25 years, we have been the primary people responsible for their economic success. They have used that economic success to not just perpetrate sort of harm on their own country, but become a global threat. And I don't just mean through like COVID type things, but they seek a long-term military power vis-a-vis -vis us that they are laying the groundwork for. And I'm fine with a photo op in Taiwan, I guess. But what I'd really like to see is elected officials really dealing with the national security threat that China poses, thinking about how our economic policy could be improved so that our middle class isn't hollowed out in service of the communists in China. Um, 
they don't seem to be doing anything to take on like big tech's involvement there, other big businesses, big Hollywood, all that stuff. A photo op is so just doesn't do anything and doesn't do anything other than increase tensions at a time when we're, by the way, very distracted with a war in Europe instead of focusing on China. What do you think? <laughs> well, I should say, of course, I was for opening China as well. And I, I you know, and I think China is an outlier in world history of a place that is more becomes more capitalistic and and wealthier, but not any freer. So that is not something I expected what would would have happened, but it but it did. So I mean, not to say some people are freer, but still most people are not, and they remain an enemy, which is a, a weird weird thing. But it is it's reality, and we have to deal with that. I I, I there are some things you said that I about Amer- America and trade and like hollowing out of the middle class. I disagree with that. I don't think the middle class is hollowed out, but I don't think we should argue about that right now. Yeah. Will, okay. <laughs> I don't think the middle class is hollowed out. In fact, I think it's grown. I think the upper middle class has grown. It's not to say there aren't certain places uh, where obviously economics have caused destruction on communities. It happens all the time and, and uh, it's, it's, unfortunate and i think we we need to help those people best we can but i don't think the the middle class has been hollowed out certainly not because of china i think you know trade partner yeah that encouraging businesses to outsource manufacturing in china a communist country um that that has had a negative effect on the ability of americans to have jobs where they can like raise a family with a job that's not like a requiring a college degree or um you don't you don't see any of like you don't think that like our concern with just making sure we have a high gdp made us insensitive to the need to be able to create our own things have supply chains based in this country and have jobs for people no i don't i don't think that that's the reason i think most of most of manufacturing has been lost to automation not china i think that the that people make things for us cheaper helps grow the economy and that's not just about gdp it's about living a better life for people you know have you know that people can live better lives yes there are fewer jobs uh that because the world has changed that don't require college but degrees why do but, we need but, to privilege china why can't we privilege like vietnam i'm or, a thousand like, percent for privileging mexico vietnam thailand it does not have okay. to be china my like i said I, I i admit that i was wrong about what would happen in china once they grew yeah. wealthier though it's not over and also we should mention that if we cut off china tomorrow um as they were years ago before nixon went there uh you know it's not like then they become a friendly nation or then that they are, are, are don't have nuclear weapons or then that they, they don't have a dangerous military. North Korea has nothing. People there live on nothing. They have no, no, you know, and they're still, you know, a dangerous nation. So I don't know what the answer is, but I'm just saying, I, I just don't blaming tra- trade with China for all our problems, I think is, is just, you know, it's, it's, it's an easy way out. Um, for you know it's an easy way to blame some that we hate basically anyway I, let me just quickly say this though on taiwan i agree with everything you said though i do think it's a lot of saber rattling i don't i don't think china's going to go to war with anyone because nancy pelosi showed up but if nancy pelosi was serious about what she was doing she would have taken a republican with her or she would have taken a bunch of congress um congressman with her rather than just going on her own for a photo what, op, what is what, what is was. what do you mean like what would that do i don't even do anything but if you're showing if you're rallying to uh to if you're rallying to stand with the taiwanese people is that how you say taiwanese people um you don't go by yourself there you go with a bunch I think of she did i think she did take a few other members i just don't understand like what the i truly didn't understand what the goal was and all these people on twitter are saying oh she was just trying to distract from her husband pleading not guilty to his dui or she had some business interests there which i guess is entirely possible the business interests. i just don't get what the str- oh, strategic ambiguity is not the best policy in the world. No, I agree. It served that. us well, though. And if you're going to deviate from that somehow, 
I'd like to know why and like yeah. what you're what you're actually trying to do and have a real plan. And real serious people would begin by making sure that we aren't like subsidizing our own destruction by privileging China with all of these businesses um, that they've used to amass power and become a geopolitical threat. That requires real things with real legislation and real strategy. A visit to Taiwan, I just, I don't even understand what the point was. No, I don't understand the point either. But also, you, can't, you, can't, you can't have China say, you an American can't travel to this place. China has no claim to <laughs> Taiwan, and we don't have to listen to them. So uh, listen, I don't think it's going to start a war. I don't know why she did it. But I also, we can't just give in to China dictating where people go, for, you know, Americans can travel. Taiwan. So can I just... Just push back on it. I totally get that. I agree. The moment China said she can't come here, I was like, well, she better go. You know, nobody tells an American where they can go. But again, we should have an understanding of what we're trying to do. You don't just antagonize people without a clear idea of what might result from that. And we, you know, China, China very much has claimed control or, you know, that there's one China, you know, that that Taiwan is not a legitimate government there uh we have we should we should understand how nations operate and what their interests are just so that we can do a more effective job of countering that even um we kind of gave this one up in the 70s in the early 70s and now is kind of a late time to litigate or challenge some of these things yeah i i don't know what our I don't know if that we have any sort of unifying foreign policy strategy at all for years, by the way, I, you know, fighting terrorism sort of gave us some focus, even though I, you know, obviously I think we made big mistakes there. Um, but how we deal with Russia, how we deal with China, I don't know. I, it looks like we're just playing, you know, making it up as we go along. Right. And, um, but I will say, any, you know, any provocation we do should have, should be intentional with particular outcomes in mind. Not just to be like, we're going to put a thumb in China's eye by visiting Taiwan. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right about how we do it. I think. Yeah. I mean, I will say, though, just in, in an idealistic sense, and obviously that's not how you run foreign policy for the most part, though, I, don't, I think that that's part should be part of the equation is that Taiwan's actually a, a nation. I think it became it started as a military dictatorship, frankly, but, you know, became a free nation a capitalistic nation far more than Ukraine has ever. If you're going to defend any of these two places, uh, Taiwan deserves our support. Not that we should want to go to war, war, you know, war over it, then Ukraine, where we are Again, in essence in war. Yeah. Our, the purpose of the United States is not to support every democracy in the world that's under threat. I don't even understand why people talk. Why can we though? Well, if it's in our national interest to do so, I'm all for it. Is it but in our national you- interest for the world to be a freer place? Again, take a step back. Maybe it is. Maybe I mean, I I would say it is, but you don't just get involved in every single conflict that's out there. Countries are getting invaded all the time. Countries are getting taken over all the time. We pick and choose where we where we go. Um, the the conversation should always be about a. I mean, peace generally is good for our national interest. It is good for us that the rest of the world be peaceful. Um, it is good. We believe in these natural rights. It's good when the rest of the world adopts a similar understanding. It enables much more prosperous trade and health and peace between nations. But it is not the mission of the United States to sacrifice our own security, health, and well-being to defend every nation that's under attack. You don't disagree with that, do you? I don't disagree with that broad statement, no. But I will say that there are people, let's call them neoconservatives, who want to get involved in every single, you know, area of, of the world and, and militarily most of the time and, and, and put us in positions where we might have to fight. And then there's the other side that now seems to me, whenever you are out there defending any sort of uh, victim of of a tyranny like China or whatever, they immediately call you a neocon because they think you want to fight a war with China. I think there's a, a good balance between those two outlooks in the world. And, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi going to China, I don't think under, undermines undermines that. Does that make so, sense? 
I absolutely. I just want to defend those people who call you a neocon. I think people are so damaged by what the neocons did of weaponizing people's goodwill and concern for their neighbor into interventionist wars that did not have the results that people wanted. So, you know, a lot of people might care about the communities of Iraq and they were told that they had to go to war in Iraq um, in order to help those communities. And then it turned out they didn't help them at all. And it hurt the U.S. um, interest also so they're just they're just getting used to these lies and so they overreact when anyone cares about for instance the brutality of the communist chinese party um or other things like that i myself find some of these people who it's like they've gone from opposing neoconservatism into just opposing any use of the military at any time opposing any war i find that to be also very bad i i can see i can it's because I can see in the future a potential conflict with China that we would have to do and that we should do that I want us to be thinking very carefully about our our next few series of steps. And, okay. and also, I don't want to be told that the reason why we have to take on China finally, um, well, first of all, I don't want to be told that the, that the first way to take on China is militarily. I would like us to be using all the other tools in our arsenal before we go into actual world war with them. And then also, I don't want to be told that the reason why we have to do this is because they are threatening Taiwan. It is true they're threatening Taiwan. It might be in our interest to do something about that, but it's we should always be laser focused on whether it serves our country and our ability to take care of our people and to have the health and prosperity and freedom that we need. Okay, but I mean... And I'm not saying Taiwan is one, but we have allies in the world and we, you know, why have allies if you're not going to defend them? So if we're in NATO, we we will have a responsibility to 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 NATO. Um, I don't like how NATO is set up now, but that that those are that's how the world and foreign policy has been run for a long time. I mean, do, do you think that that if NATO doesn't always act in the best interest of, of the American people, right? It is not even set up to act in the best interest of the American people. It's in the set up to act in the best interest of the European Western European people. So um, um, would I you not want to be in those alliances anymore? When NATO was set up immediately after world war II, uh, it was in America's interest to have a strong support of Europe. I think after how much it's like 70 years more than that, now, Europe should be taking care of its own security interests far, far more, and we should be subsidizing them far, far less. That we're still having this post-World War II model, when in the meantime, China is rising, is absurd. And also, alliances are best when they're kind of tight and small, I think. When they get big, when all of a sudden, you know, it makes sense that we said, hey, if, you know, Italy gets attacked or whatever, or, you know, France gets attacked, we're coming in. When it's like Montenegro, <laughs> when it's like things that I think you'd have a hard time selling to the American people. Also, we're expanding NATO. When you expand an alliance like that, it can be viewed as uh, provocative to the, uh, to the region. And the idea that like Finland and Sweden could be not in NATO during the entirety of the Cold War. And that was okay. But now they need to be in there. And now you're like the worst person in the world if you think that expanding NATO without fixing some of these major problems is like, you know, it's like the worst thing ever. I don't know. I I will also just point out our policy toward China is strategic ambiguity. So I'm not sure what alliance you're talking about in particular. Yeah, yeah, but- no, I, I I said not Taiwan, but I just mean in general, you know, just from the, what you had said earlier, but I, I, I agree with you on NATO, incidentally. I think that Russia and Finland could, even because of what's going on in Ukraine, could accidentally get into some sort of conflict and then we would be pulled into into it as just not, not worth it um, from my point of view. Also, I would- like- Turkey being in NATO has already been challenging enough for us, you know, like they are, they are a legit ally, but they, but we have problems there. And it's just, anytime you expand and you have bigger alliances, you have to think about the costs and the benefits. And so uh, it would just be great if people were kind of changing their vision to be looking more 
eastward about well, the- I agree. I was going to say, I think that we should be strengthening alliances with India or even with Gulf yes. states, frankly, even with places like that more than Europe, which can take care of itself. Germany, I think, spends around less than 2% on its on its mili- of its GDP on military. We, we essentially allow their economies to thrive because we have been defending them for 70 years, a big part of it. So I, I agree with all that. I'm just saying... I don't know what I'm saying. The Taiwan trip. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is uh, it, it is I, I just simply can't have people telling us where we can go or not or where Nancy Pelosi can go, though. I'm not exactly sure like you why why the trip happened. So um, let us do you want to turn to culture? Yeah. OK. Do you want to go first? Sure. I read on the website, I read on the Federalist website about this TV show with um, Jeremy Clarkson. Okay. I forget what it's called, but it's, a you know, the guy from um, Top Gear Top Gear, and he owns this massive farm in the Cotswolds and he has owned it since 2008 and someone from the nearby village used to farm it, but they retired or something. And so he has to start farming himself. So I just started watching the first episode of that. It was hilarious. Um, it did have like unnecessary bad language, which we run our videos through Vid Vid Angel, which is a bleeping service, so that you can watch things with the kids. Um, but it was like silly how much was getting bleeped. <laughs> like I don't know why you need to cuss so much. Well, I mean, I guess I could understand it. I'd probably be doing the same if I was learning how to farm. Uh, very funny. The villagers all constantly rip on him for being an idiot, and he just kind of takes it. But it's tender, and it is it's a it's a good show. I recommend that. What is it called? I don't know. Okay. I'll look that Something up. about going to a farm. Uh, it sounds like the sort of show that you would have mocked me for, for recommending <laughs> last year, right? Or a few years so, ago. <laughs> true story. I really wanted to watch something you'd recommended, your name. And nobody was down for doing this. And I said, but David recommended it. <laughs> and my husband just started ripping on your recommendations. It was great. Anyway. Um, oh, funny. Um, I, yeah, I, what else? I have more. But I'll wait. No, no. I'll go. I'll go now. I'll start with the lesser of my two recommends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was in New York with my with 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 my parents and or one of my parents and uh, they uh, in the morning on Sunday mornings watch the Smithsonian Channel. And there's this show where there's a drone and it travels across the United States, just going from like little town. to. I just realized you inherited your bad taste. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be. A, so what they do is the, so the drone will fly around and the <laughs> announcer person will talk about the history of a place. So it'll go like over um, Levin, Levin, Levensworth in Kansas, the jail. Is that, that the right name? And uh, they'll tell you the whole history of the jail and then they'll go on to the next thing. And it was really calm. It's educational. Uh, and I watched it for like three straight hours. I didn't even go outside and it was really good. I don't know what it's called, but I think Droning America, maybe. <laughs> That's probably not it. Um, so it was really. Uh, yeah. I want someone I want someone to watch it on your recommendation and let us know how it went. All right, my it does remind one. me, I think I maybe mentioned this before my brother, I was visiting him and he said, do you want to see my favorite movie? And I was like, yeah. And he put on a three hour YouTube of a guy building a log cabin, no dialogue, <laughs> nothing. Just, and it was, what was it called? It, I want to watch this. It was so good. And I was so into it. I was like, shh, 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 shh. like, I want to, I wanted, I wanted to know everything anyway. Okay. You have another one. Sure. Um, I rewatched one of my favorite movies, which is called Rope. It's Rope. Alfred Hitchcock. Sure. I love this movie and I watched it with the kids. Um, and it's, I don't know what to say about it. It's all basically, it was, it's adapted from a play. So it kind of works as like a single shot. It all takes place in an apartment. It's about two people who think they're better than everybody else and who are heavily influenced by their professor who's like a Nietzschean to believe that some people can commit crimes like some people have the right to commit crimes because they're kind of better people than like a Leopold and Loeb it is so obviously based on Leopold and Loeb but this is but in this case um 
two guys in a New York apartment who are adults who are older than Leopold and Lober, I think. Uh, it's it's really well done. I really like the philosophy discussions. I really like the cinematography, the acting. Um, I didn't, re- I'm like an idiot. So I didn't realize how strong the gay subtext for or like themes of the hmm of the two main characters were until I watched it this time. Um, and I've watched it like a, a ton. I don't know why I missed that very obvious thing before, but highly recommend it. A lot of uh, the Hitchcock movies hold up uh, rear window. I think I watched a few years ago and I thought it would look really great. Some do not like, I didn't think like psycho does, but I don't think the birds really does because of the effects are kind of amateurish looking to the modern eye, probably, you know, all right. My second, recommend is a really good one i think <laughs> you might even like it it's called mr okay. in between have you ever heard of it mr in between it's on hulu it's an australian nope. show it i it is so if you like barry on hbo this is a better show i love barry okay this is a better show it has a similar kind of theme it, it's a dark comedy um and it is amazing and it's australian and I'm only in the first season, but I think there might be four of them. Um, the actor's great. That was his name. I think it's his last name is Ryan's or something. And uh, I couldn't recommend this highly enough. Like t- for me, this is kind of like this and the bear have been the two best shows I've seen this year. I told Emily Jashinsky to watch the bear and she like watched it in one setting or so. And my only problem with that show was that it was so it was kind of short. <sighs> So I want, I just want to know everyone involved. And then I want to, I want to follow them with whatever their next projects are. I do want to also mention this other show I watched. It's not really a high recommend, but sometimes my husband and I like to watch movies from the eighties and it was called dead again, I think. And I know this, let me guess. Wait, wait, is this with Kenneth Branagh? The one? Yes. I've watched all the eighties movies. Yeah. You would do well in the Hemingway home. Um, it was interesting. I kind of like just movies like that. So yeah, it's a, it's his first directing his first time directing. He also stars in it. Um, is his Emma wife, Thompson. his then wife in it. What's her name? Emma Thompson. Is that where they met? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she's in it. They're both great. I thought it was totally uneven. Like it wasn't quite sure what it was. Like, is it a comedy? Is it noir? Is it drama? It's involves sort of like past lives. I think it was at that period of time when people believed in that um, or were pushing that. I remember that being like a main thing on Phil Donahue or Oprah, the, you know, back then. Uh, but I liked it. It was kind of it was good. Oh, it's a good recommend. I might, I might go watch that. Um, most of his movies in that era were like Shakespeare and things like that. So I think that was his first sort of like non-Shakespeare thing. And it was pretty good. He directs like the um, Agatha Christie, like Death on the Nile. And he plays Perot. He he does those. Those are pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. Peter Houstonoff was amazing. You ever see those? I'll make another recommend. Peter Houstonoff. <laughs> he played Perot in those Agatha Christie novels, like uh, uh, movies. No? Death on the yeah. Nile. They're amazing. 1970s. All right. Well, that's it. Molly. By the way, I do want to yeah. point out that people have liked my recommends according to our reader email. Which ones? Oh, the um, the one, uh, the BBC radio show. When you say people, you mean one person, right? I I mean, <laughs> well, maybe you're not getting all of the emails. I'm not. Getting. I mostly ignore them, as you know. I get lovely email. I even, so yeah, I thought that that was to both of us, the, um, the cabin pressure one yeah cabin pressure there was also i believe a, a request for just a show of nothing but oh i was gonna bring that up yeah but would from, you like to do that from me from you not, you yeah. not for you <laughs> <laughs> screw that guy um the um yeah would you like to do that that might be fun maybe near yeah. maybe near the holidays we can just do a uh like our favorite shows of the last few years or movies or something like that yep yep i like it all right, well, I'll speak to you next week, Molly. Be okay. lovers. Oh, you have something to say? Nope. Oh, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the phrase. Okay.